This is the podcast for the journal Neuropsychopharmacology Reviews. I'm Cynthia Graber. Cannabis has been used ceremonially, ritually, even medically for millennia, but due to laws from the early 20th century, its recreational and pharmacological use was curtailed, and research into its potential has been severely curtailed as well. But major discoveries in recent decades have moved the field forward, and now the latest edition of Neuropsychopharmacology Reviews is called Cannabis and Cannabinoids from Synapse to Society. The review includes nearly a dozen papers in which the authors explore the effects of different chemicals either from the cannabis plant or similar ones produced endogenously on individual brain synapses and on brain development. The review also covers potential clinical uses for cannabis and cannabinoids, discusses issues and challenges in studying cannabis, and investigates public health issues as well. The editors are Margaret Haney, professor of neurobiology and psychiatry at Columbia University Medical Center, and Matthew Hill, associate professor at the Hotchkiss Brain Institute at the University of Calgary. This review is particularly timely, say the editors, both because of the changes in the regulation and legality of cannabis, as well as a much greater understanding of both cannabis and the endogenous endocannabinoid system in the brain. For instance, says Matt Hill, cannabinoids are known to regulate the chemicals transmitted from neuron to neuron. But one of the things that this issue goes through in a little bit more depth is that there's a lot more to how cannabinoids influence cells than just by regulating chemical transmitter release. And so Especially in the first paper, one of the things they highlight is its ability to affect mitochondria. And mitochondria are kind of like the the energy powerhouse of a cell. And we now know that cannabinoids actually have direct effects on mitochondria. And this, in fact, seems to mediate a lot of the effects in the brain, such as impairments in short-term memory. The review also looks at how the endocannabinoid system affects the development of adolescent brains. And what they highlight in this article is this seems to be a really important system for the maturation of the adolescent brain, and in particular, how the part of our brain called the prefrontal cortex, which is one of the last parts of the brain to mature and is ongoing maturity through adolescence. Um, And this is the part of the brain that helps us reason and make decisions and inhibit actions that we shouldn't be doing. The endocannabinoid system seems to really help this this part of the brain mature into its normative adult state, especially with how it connects with um, lower brain regions like the amygdala to modulate emotional behavior. And moving on to clinical studies, Meg, one reason people give for medical marijuana use is to combat pain. What evidence does the review article find? Pain is actually one of the stronger endpoints that appear to be effective with cannabinoid treatment. So the chapter we have published is really focused on chronic pain. I think Part of the problem we ran into with opioids is people being prescribed opioids for a long term and developing problems therein, when opiates are not even necessarily terribly effective for chronic pain. What is exciting is that cannabinoids appear to be. So there's good preclinical evidence that both phytocannabinoids and the endocannabinoid system modulating those can reduce neuropathic pain. And So the human data are are quite uh, limited, but this is an area we really need more information. Matt, another area that seems intriguing but also in need of more research is the effects of cannabis on PTSD. What's the research showing there? In the PTSD article, what we reviewed there was kind of going through what we know about the biology and a lot of the major theories of of PTSD, how it relates to... um, inabilities to appropriately extinguish emotionally aversive memories, 
uh, states of hyperarousal, problem sleeping, high levels of anxiety, some underlying changes in inflammation and hormonal systems. Um, and we essentially discuss how all of these findings are consistent with what you would see with um, an impairment in, in normative endocannabinoid signaling in the brain and the body. And so we then go on to um, describe some clinical work that's been done in, in a few studies just looking at endocannabinoid levels or endocannabinoid function in individuals with PTSD. And there is some mixed evidence, but there is some early evidence that does suggest that at least in a subset of uh, individuals who have PTSD, the endocannabinoid system may not be functioning properly. Uh, my colleague and co-author, Sachin Patel, who's done at Vanderbilt University, had done some work where he actually demonstrated in animals that you can create a, a deficiency in endocannabinoid signaling through genetic or pharmacological approaches. And actually, in those situations, administering animals THC can reverse a lot of the behavioral changes, such as the heightened anxiety and stuff. So uh, a lot of these questions, like we've said, are, are kind of lingering. But there's enough evidence there in my mind that we should really start considering this from a serious point of view to study it more in depth. The review also highlights potential sex differences in both cannabis use and response to cannabis. Meg, you've studied that. What are you seeing? So there are some interesting human laboratory studies myself and colleagues have done testing this in the laboratory. So we have seen, uh, again, under controlled cannabis administration that men actually benefit more from the pain-reducing effects of cannabis than women. So we see a pretty robust analgesia in men that's largely absent in women. So this, again, is just one study, a small sample, but uh, again, just giving this hint that, that these sex differences exist. Similarly, when we test the abuse liability of, of cannabis, we see sex differences. So women appear to be more sensitive to some of these measures of abuse liability after smoking cannabis. So how much they like the drug or would be willing to smoke it more. There's so much that uh, needs to be studied, and these are extraordinarily difficult studies to do, given the uh, legality and the regulation for studying cannabis, given that it's a Schedule One drug. It's the strictest designation by the DEA for a drug, so it severely limits our ability to study these things in the laboratory. So let's talk about this. In the studies you've mentioned, the sample sizes are really small or it's hard to get human data. The U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency, as you've just mentioned, has designated cannabis a Schedule One drug. What's the impact on research? So I'd like to start here because it's near and dear to my heart. It's, it's enormously frustrating. So there's one, again, indication preclinically that cannabidiol, we'll just use one example of pain, and that's chemotherapy-induced neuropathy. So certain forms of chemotherapy agents, 70% of women who receive paclitaxel develop neuropathy. So this is, again, this tingling discomfort in their fingers and their hands. Preclinical data show that cannabidiol pretreatment prevents the development completely of this neuropathy. And even after women or animals have developed neuropathy, you can attenuate it with cannabidiol. So we want to do this study in humans. There's no source of cannabidiol. Um, you need a Schedule One license to study it. I have that. But the only way I can get cannabidiol is um, from the NIDA marijuana plant. The only way I can give people this NIDA marijuana is in my lab. So here we have a patient population with neuropathy that probably need to take it several times a day they're going to need to come to my lab. It's the only way I can give them cannabidiol to do this study. So even with all the regulatory pieces in place, I can't even do a well-controlled, placebo-controlled study because of the regulations at a time when we need it the most, when you know tens of thousands of people are using 
cannabinoids and cannabis to treat a medical condition. I do think it's important to note that there is a lot of misinformation that goes out because of this lack of appropriate clinical studies. So people make assumptions about things that the drug does or doesn't do. They make claims on it. A lot of uh, companies that sell this at a medical perspective make very kind of sweeping generalizations about the efficacy of things. And so that's a problem. But I think on the other side of the coin, there's a problem when you have conservative groups especially going off that there's no evidence to support any of these claims and that's true that there's no evidence but the interpretation of that is is that there's no evidence to support efficacy when literally what they mean is there is just no evidence because there's not been any really properly done trials. What do you both hope the review offers the field? What do you hope it reveals about the field? One thing I hope is that people see the exciting advances in the endocannabinoid system and a, and a more sophisticated understanding of the way that it works. You know, again, my takeaway is all of these very intriguing preclinical findings desperately need carefully controlled human studies. I agree with Meg. I think we need to get a lot better clinical studies. I think the one thing that comes out of this I'm hoping that will help drive some of the clinical studies is there are a lot of very interesting hypotheses to test. So, I, I mean, that's kind of the hope I have. I mean, and then from the basic science side, I think it's also really good for people to start recognizing that the system is, is a lot more complicated and influences a lot more cellular processes than we used to give it credit for. So um, the means with which it can uh, modulate the brain and the body is becoming a much bigger question at this point. The latest edition of Neuropsychopharmacology Reviews is called Cannabis and Cannabinoids from Synapse to Society. For a list of the papers covered in this reviews issue, as well as the full editorial introduction, go to www.nature.com nppr. I'm Cynthia Graber.